Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I, I'm, I'm reading uh, St. Ignatius of Antioch and uh-huh. St. Justin Martyr, and I start to feel very uncomfortable <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I, I don't, I just am looking at this and I remember thinking like, these people sound very Catholic to me. <laughs> they, they sound like Catholics. In his religious autobiography, Jeremy Christensen, a devout and happy Mormon of a good Mormon family, with a good Mormon wife, also from a good Mormon family, tells the story of how he started pulling on the threads of that tapestry, how it came unraveled in his hands, and how he found a new spiritual home in the Church of Rome. Welcome to Almost Good Catholics, a conversation about theology and apologetics. I'm your host, Chris Odinitz, and I get to ask interesting people who've thought about the big questions to share their conclusions, to explain what we know, how we know it, why we think we know it. I hope this dialogue may help us approach the truth and have a really great time doing it. If you'd like to join the conversation, please email almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. My guest today is Jeremy Christensen. He is a lawyer a senior associate in the Washington, D.C. office of Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher. He's a member of the firm's Appellate and Constitutional Law, Administrative and Regulatory, Intellectual Property, and Litigation Practice Groups. He also sits on the Pro Bono Committee at the firm's D.C. office. He's been a law clerk for judges on the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit and the Utah Supreme Court. The Utah part is important for our conversation today because we'll be talking about his upcoming book from Ignatius Press. It's the story of his upbringing as a Mormon and his pilgrimage to the Catholic Church. So welcome, Jeremy, to Almost Good Catholics. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm happy to be here. I'm very pleased to have you. What's your book going to be called? The book is entitled From the Susquehanna to the Tiber. Uh-huh. Now, that's a reference to the Susquehanna River uh, that runs through the northeastern United States and plays a central role in the the Mormon vision of the restoration of of priestly authority. Uh, According to Mormon teaching, uh, Peter, James, and John appeared to Joseph Smith and one of his associates, Oliver Cowdery, and conferred on them uh, the keys of the kingdom mentioned in the book of Matthew uh, that uh, Jesus had conferred on Peter. And this is part of the essence of the Mormon claim of authority and the Mormon claim to be the one true church. Got it. Okay, so that is a very rich title. And I, I like a title that says a lot in a little and it can also, you know, has the added um, labels, uh, place place names that, that say a lot to us. And so we all know about swimming the Tiber and, and becoming a Catholic. Now, I grew up in California and I was a Boy Scout. So I had a lot of Mormon friends because out here, I think it's different on the East Coast, but out here, the, there's, a, there's more Mormons and the Boy Scouts of America is sort of the official program for the church. So there's a lot of kids 
just by virtue of being Mormon who become Boy Scouts. And since I worked at a scout camp, I had a lot of friends and a lot of scout masters. So um, sometimes we start with a joke and I just want to take the opportunity to repeat a joke. Uh, a friend of mine, a Mormon scout master had told me, the joke goes like this. Uh, a guy dies and he goes, appears at the pearly gates and he meets St. Peter um, and St. Peter takes him in. He's like, you know, yep, here's your name in the book. Come on in. And maybe it's like a small group of people who happen to die in the same bus crash or something. And they're walking around. He says, here is, you know, here is God's throne. Over here are the fountains. Here's where you get your harp issued. Here's where you get your toga. Here's, you know, the Elysian fields and so on and so on and so on. And then he comes to a wall. And on the wall, it says, absolute silence must be maintained at all times. And St. Peter turns to the newcomers and he says, shh. And they tiptoe past this wall, and they tiptoe past this wall, and they tiptoe past this wall. The wall is very long. And after a while, they get past the wall, and St. Peter says, Okay, thank you. Now we can talk again. I want to show you over here this beautiful forest. And one of the uh, newcomers says, Wait, wait, wait. What, what's behind that wall? And St. Peter says, Oh, that's where the Mormons are. They think they're the only ones here. <laughs> <laughs> that's a yeah. very good one. I think you could probably spin that. It doesn't have to be Mormons. It could be any group that, you know, sort of, first of all, is included in heaven and two might think they have a monopoly on the truth. But since it was a Mormon friend of mine, that's the way he told it. And I've always liked it. So tell tell us a bit about your your life and your upbringing. Yeah. So I was born in a very small rural uh, town in Utah, and I was born to... Uh, into a very faithful Mormon family. My parents are still uh, very much uh, faithfully Mormon. Most of my siblings are as well. They had seven children and grew up at a, at a time, you know, in a, in a very Mormon community. Uh, probably at the time, I would say upwards of 80% of our small town was Mormon. And you know, maybe 3,000 people in, in the town, so not very big, but, you know, Mormonism was uh, the way I was raised, and we were very orthodox in, in terms of of, uh, of our beliefs in the church, our beliefs in its teachings. Uh, we said family prayers every morning and every night, and we read from the Book of Mormon every single day, and went to church every Sunday, and participated very actively. My father served as uh, as the bishop of our ward. A ward mm-hmm. is sort of Mormon terminology for what what you might call a, a congregation. Uh, and within you know the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, the the official name for the church, uh, they have largely a, a volunteer lay leadership. The, mm-hmm. um, so at, at sort of the lower levels, folks aren't, aren't paid to do this. This is something that you volunteer to do or not. You, you're asked to do it, um, but you're not or, paid. So you're assigned. You're assi- like you might be a bishop one year and then you might be the scoutmaster the next year and then you might be. Yeah, for year. something like a yeah, for something like a bishop, it, it usually lasts quite a bit longer, say five years. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's some continuity there in, in leading a local congregation. But my. My father was was the bishop uh, when I was when I was quite young, and my parents always. This is called a, a calling. So whoever the bishop is, or there could be higher level leaders in in what's called a stake, which is 
A stake is a group of wards geographically connected together. Uh, you might receive a calling. And, Would that and be like I, a, a parish and a diocese, for example? Yes, yeah, something like that. Um, I, that's a, it's a, a fair enough comparison. There are some differences, but, uh, but it gives you the gist of the idea. And, you know, the Mormon church runs heavily off of, off of the notion of revelation, that God is sort of continually speaking uh, to the prophet of the Mormon church, and that within each of our spheres in life, we are entitled to receive personal revelation from God. And so a, a local leader, say a bishop, has to sort of staff up many you know, positions to run a ward. There could be a mm. lot of people in a ward, and there's Sunday school and the youth programs and the Boy Scout program, uh, at least they're used to. I, I think the church doesn't uh, affiliate with the Boy Scouts officially any longer. I do I do want to just add that, yes, yeah. when I was a Boy Scout, it was last century. So there, it was before the Boy Scouts had girls, before they had gay kids, and before they had uh, atheists. And so those are the three Gs, uh, godless gays and girls or something. And all of that has changed. And so I imagine the Mormons had to start their own program. They, I, I think there was, um, you know, it was only a couple of years ago when the church sort of officially cut its ties with the Boy Scout program. Yeah. The, the LDS church has been uh, historically a very significant supporter of, of the Boy Scouts since its, its uh, inception in the United States uh, in the early 20th century. Yeah. And, uh, but, but you would receive a, you know, a calling uh, from a bishop to say, I, I feel inspired that, you know, you should, uh, teach Sunday school or that you should be in, in the, the Boy Scout program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the expectation is that you say yes. And my parents always did, uh, and always had some sort of involvement and, uh, you know, grew up a very uh, happy life. We weren't, um, uh, you know, rich by any means. We were actually probably poor. If you, if I think about it hard enough, uh, didn't feel that way most of the mm -hmm. time, um, did at other times, but that be, but you were rich in community, I imagine, but you probably couldn't afford. All yeah, very, yeah. very much so. Uh, and that's something that Mormonism does exceptionally well, um, or at least, you know, did, I don't know how it fares on that scale now, but, um, for a very long time, there's a, a thick sense of community when we, when it, later on, you know, in life, when my wife and I moved to different places and while we were still members of the church, you could always count on there being a community there for you wherever you went. You needed to help help moving in. Somebody got sick. You have a baby. People bring you meals. Uh, th there is a, a deep sense of community like that within Mormonism that uh, that binds people pretty, pretty tightly together. Uh, and and very much theologically, I think that's reinforced by kind of returning to to uh, the joke. Um, it's reinforced by a sense of us versus them, not necessarily in a in a negative way, painting the rest of the world negatively, although that that does happen. But Mormonism views itself as uh, as the one true church, and yeah. You know, the, the as members, as the Latter-day Saints, and there's a, a, a tightness that comes with that, that, that definitely has its benefits.
Yeah, no, and I, I remember when we would go to the movies on the weekends, we work at a scout camp and we were, you know, close friends, but you would, even as adults, you know, of course, Mormons don't drink alcohol, they don't have beer, but even our right. Mormon friend would would choose not to go to the same movie that we would go to if it was not appropriate for him to see because it was rated R or, or whatever. So there's a certain separateness. At the same time, when we lived, when I was... Uh, when I had a very young family and I lived in Alaska and I was trying to move, the the people who said like, "Hey, we'll help you move," were the were the Mormon missionaries that I had befriended or who had befriended me, and mm-hmm. we would chat, uh, you know, about religion in the park. And when it came time to move, they're the ones who are like, "Hey, we'll help you. We we're we're happy to carry boxes." Okay, so then what happened? Um, so you were uh, you, your wife is a, was you and your wife were Mormons. You were married yeah. in the temple, and everything was. Yeah. So, you know, I I think from sort of growing up period, um, I like, like most, um, I don't know about most, but like many uh, young Mormon men, when I turned 19, I put in Mm -hmm. sort of my application and then I received a mission call from the president of the LDS church uh, and became a missionary like, like, uh, like those who befriended you. So I, I, I served two years in the Buenos Aires North mission in Argentina. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that in and of itself, uh, you could probably have an entire interview uh, about what Absolutely. a missionary experience is like. It's very um, different. It's a coming of age kind of experience. Certainly uh, you, you go out, you don't have, at least when I was a missionary and this, this would have been 2006 through 2008, you, don't have regular contact with your family. You write home. We could email home once a week, uh, and only to your parents. You don't. You got to have a phone call on Mother's Day and Christmas with your family for, <laughs> for fifteen or twenty or thirty minutes or something. Yeah. But it's it's a uh, it's it's somewhat monastic. Um, not not in being isolated from other people, but it, it is uh, being very dedicated to evangelization. And you spend, you know, you have a rigorous schedule that's set. You get up every morning at 630 and you go to bed every night at 1030 and you leave the house at, uh, you know, 930 and you spend all day, except for when you maybe go home for lunch and might have a dinner appointment with somebody proselytizing and uh, approaching strangers on the street and, and we, we should add that you raise money for this yourself and your family pays for you to yeah, go. Yeah, my study. family paid for me yeah. for me to be there. And, yeah. um, and now, every boy goes two years and a girl goes one and a half or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. It, it is, um, you know, the church does subsidize it. The, the, the LDS church is very um, financially savvy and very wealthy. And the, you are expected to pay a certain amount of money. I think that amount of money uh, is much higher if you are from the United States than it is other places. Uh, if you're from Europe, I think it's much higher. And they use they use that money to sort of subsidize across the world because obviously it costs a lot less money for me to be living in Buenos Aires, Argentina, than it does for, say, someone to be in London, right? right or to be right. in New York City. Uh, and cost, you know, much less money, even so for someone to be in Ghana. And so, you know, they're, they're, they have a system set up uh, where, you know, your family is paying this money and 
it may be paying for quite a bit of what you do. It may actually be subsidizing, you know, other missionaries throughout the world. But, uh, you know, you go, your, your, your rent is taken care of. You receive money each month in an account for you to buy food. And, and, uh, but your, your time is, is spent, you know, wholly dedicated to trying to teach about Mormonism, uh, to everybody that you meet. And I spoke with, thousands of people, uh, Mm -hmm. in, in those two years. I mean, I stood up in front of crowded buses and, uh, you feel like you're in the book of acts standing up on, you know, preaching to people and, uh, knocking on people's doors. And and, you uh, have a little, um, like a a stump speech ready to go in Spanish that you had rehearsed and practiced. And, uh, I think when you're, when you're new, yeah, you certainly might have something that's more rehearsed. Um, you, you definitely have a sense of of kind of what the core that you're trying to teach about, which is the restoration of the gospel, right? The Mormonism uh, has, has a worldview that God at various times in the past, uh, in what they call dispensations, handed down sort of his, the whole of his truth to mankind through a prophet. And people would have that for some time, and then they eventually devolve into apostasy, and that, mm-hmm. that's sort of how they characterize the Old Testament history. And then you have uh, God sending his son, Jesus Christ, down with, again, the fullness of his truth. And then it's lost in what Mormonism calls the great apostasy. What is the great apostasy? So, so the great apostasy is the idea that both priestly authority, legitimate priestly authority to act in God's name, and the true teachings were both lost um, and, and, and sort of lost from the earth. And so what you have is all of this confusion. You have obviously, uh, you know, the Catholic Church playing um, somewhat of a nefarious role in, in the great apostasy. Because of its corruption. And, yeah, uh, yeah. The, yeah. The, it's, a, it's a standard a Protestant narrative as well. Yeah. Um, but the... The, the narrative is something like, you know, there, there was the, the truth being taught by the apostles, but by the time the last apostle dies, right. there's, there's, there has to be 12 apostles on the earth all the time, according to Mormonism. And so that, that's gone. And what you have left, you, you don't have a prophet on the earth anymore, uh, which they see as as sort of a, an office, like that there needs to be a prophet and the prophet is the one who leads the church. You, you have people, you know, from their perspective, mixing bad ideas with the truth. And, and so from their perspective, this, the Trinity, for instance, is an idea that uh, Christians start borrowing all these ideas from pagan Greek philosophy and they corrupt uh, the teachings about the true nature of God, a- and come up with the idea of the Trinity. Um, and so there is no Trinity in in the Mormon faith. Uh, cor- like sort of correctly speaking, properly understood, no. Uh, the Mormons okay. don't believe in the Trinity. If you say, if you asked a Mormon, do you believe in the Trinity? They might say yes, because they would say, we believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I, 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 for instance, uh, I was baptized uh, when I was eight years old, um, which is when Mormons typically baptize, not before then. I was baptized in what seems like a Trinitarian form in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. 
but Mormonism has a, a, a vastly different conception of deity and mm. one that is um, kind of depending on on which schools of thought within Mormonism you might you might follow or adhere to. Mormonism is either what what you call henotheistic or polytheistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, henotheism is sort of a subset of polytheism. So Mormonism, rather than thinking of deity as we do as Catholics, uh, that there is a that deity is unique, right? It is a nature, it's God's nature. It is what it is to be God. And by definition is unique, and there is only one divine essence or divine nature. Deity for Mormons is is sort of a freestanding category in the universe that all of us, in fact, can ultimately obtain to. And so God, the Father, is our Father, uh, the Father of our spirits, and he is a God, and Jesus Christ is also a God, and the Holy Spirit is also a God, but they do not, they are not consubstantial, as we mm-hmm. would say, you know, under the creed. It. It, uh, they are three uh, distinct beings rather than three distinct persons. Um, and and so Mormonism would either be polytheistic on that view, because they believe in three gods, and in fact, they probably acknowledge the existence of many, many, many gods. Uh, because for them, we can all going to heaven and to its highest degree ultimately consists in becoming a god. Yeah. Or you and might, getting and getting your own little world to then supervise. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Or or, or um, henotheistic, which is, yes, we acknowledge that there are many gods, but we only worship one. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's definitely a strand of Mormonism that is heavier on influencing or, or on emphasizing that rather. And that would say, for instance, uh, we don't technically worship Jesus Christ. We worship yeah. the Father, the Father alone. We worship him through Jesus Christ. But technically speaking, we only worship the Father because we only worship one God. And th- this is sort of comes out in the writings of one of Mormonism's apostles who's very influential in the 20th century named Bruce R. McConkie. And and a lot of his writings were influential on sort of emphasizing this point. We only worship the father. But uh, if you asked a a Mormon today, do you worship Jesus? They would likely say yes. Okay. But this does solve the problem and say, what are you doing in in, uh, Buenos Aires? Because I think being a missionary to uh, India or something where you clearly have a very different worldview, talking to all these Catholics who already believe in Jesus, they're like, what are you talking about? We have, we have this, but you're, but what you're presenting, what you're offering is quite different than what an, an Argentine, uh, you know, person in Buenos Aires would, would, would have been taught. Yes, absolutely. And, and that I, I got that question many times of people would say, you know, Argentina is a Christian nation. Uh, uh, Catholicism is sort of the, yeah. you know, official religion or was for some time of, of the country. And, um, yeah. what are you doing here? And that, and that is sort of the, the point of that message of restoration is, is trying to persuade people that there was an apostasy and that God called a prophet named Joseph Smith in, yeah. uh, in New York in the early 19th century to restore true Christianity to the earth and that, that that's where people needed to be. 
So how did it go for you? Did you get uh, any converts? Yeah, I think I either baptized or sort of proximately contributed. You get rotated out from areas. So you might teach somebody and they're they're kind of ready to get baptized and you just get transferred out and they get baptized right after you leave. But, uh, uh-huh. you know, maybe 25 people or so, yeah. um, which is not a lot for, you know, Argentina is not a known as a high baptizing country where baptisms are not as high as they are in places, say like Mexico or Guatemala, other places oh, wow. in Central Central America. And I think in, in part due to a, a couple of things, there's a much stronger European influence, Western European influence in, in Argentina. Uh, and some of the secular worldview, I think, has carried mm-hmm. over as much as people are instinctually Catholic. They also have, uh, there's a lot of secularism there that makes it, you know, you yeah. you might be unsurprised to know that places like uh, England and France and Spain and Portugal have uh, low numbers of baptisms. Yeah. Um, and not just because of a kind of vestigial Catholic influence, uh, but but yeah, yeah, the, I baptized people. I was there and... Um, Spent two years there. I really love the country. Argentina is a beautiful place and got to to see much of it. Our our mission was centered around the capital, but for logistical reasons, we also had the very southern tip of the Patagonia. So I spent nine months months, uh, down there in um, Tierra del Fuego and uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, saw penguins in the wild and those sorts of things. And... <laughs> That's so great. What do you think of the uh, claim that really your job was to convert yourself? That at the age where you're most rebellious and independently inclined um, to, you know, se- sever yourself from the identity you were brought up in, you are sent to a new place out of you, out of context where you're defending your faith instead of questioning it. And so the whole idea is that you young people then come back having defended the faith for two years and so are um, stronger uh, Mormons as adults. I think that's an explicit intention, um, not not even a hidden one or a nefarious one of the LDS church. I, I think I couldn't count the number of times when you go, you know, just before you leave uh, or you mm-hmm. leave on your mission and, and generally you used to spend, if, if you're going to learn a foreign language, you'd, you'd spend six or eight weeks in Provo, Utah at the Missionary Training Center. And it's mm-hmm. sort of spiritual boot camp while they're also trying to teach you another language and teach you how to proselytize. And I, I can't tell you the number of times somebody said, the most important convert of your mission will be you. Uh, so yeah. I don't think that's even uh, sort of a hidden agenda of the LDS Church. In fact, I think to some extent, there's something that the Catholic Church could learn from that mm-hmm. uh, about having people have an experience that puts them in a position of defending their faith and puts them, gives them some time to really just dedicate themselves to a really important aspect of the faith. So in that sense, I, I, um, I think it could be used in the right context for, for something good. Okay. So now we're in Argentina. Uh, you've, you've participated in the 20, 25 or so, you know, by either directly or indirectly in the conversion. Then what happens? Uh, so I came home. Um, the mission ends after two years. I came home back to my little town and was uh, working as a school bus diesel mechanic 
and hmm. and sort of a shop hand at the at the local school district and preparing to go to college. I had done a semester of college before I left on my mission, but um, you know, I was gonna go off to college and uh each week uh the Mormon church has a program they call it Institute or the Institute of Religion, which are uh, religious instructional classes that you, you take for young adults, for people 18, 19, 20, you know, in their 20s. And so I, I would go to the Institute on, I don't know what it was, Tuesday or Wednesday nights or something. And the first one I go to, you know, I met a, a beautiful young woman um, active in the Mormon church who was there, who I didn't know, who was not from my small town. She was from Southern California. Uh, and, mm-hmm. uh, we, uh, hit it off and started dating and, you know, Mormonism certainly had, I, I think it still has, but maybe losing this culture of, I, I was raised to pattern my life after my parents. My parents were married mm-hmm. fairly young. My dad served a mission, came home. They got married in their early twenties, had a lot of children, uh, start, you know, you're having children while you go off to school, you're kind of poor for a while and you, that's just how you live life. And, yeah. and so, you know, Carly and I, uh, fell in love. We dated pretty quickly <laughs> and we were, we met in February or March of, of 2000, of 2008. And we got married in September of that, mm-hmm. of that same year. Uh, in, uh, we were, we were sealed, which is the term in Mormonism at the LDS temple in Los Angeles, California. That's there on Santa Monica hmm. Boulevard. Uh, so we were, uh, you know, married in a, you know, Mormon temple ceremony there and began, began our life. Uh, and I was going to college in Cedar city, Utah at a, small university called Southern Utah University. My wife had already graduated from college. She's a couple of years older than I am. She was in Blanding teaching English. And uh, so we up and up and moved and she was teaching classes um, there in Cedar City while I was going to school until we had our first child. And uh, she she stopped working at, after we had our first and so I worked and went to school at the same time and, uh, you know, was very yeah. involved in, in Mormonism. I served as a, as a second counselor to a bishop. So the, each ward, you know, you have the bishop who's in charge and then there, he's got two assistants who are in charge with him. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. I was 22, uh, when I was called to serve as a, as a counselor to the, to the bishop in an, in a ward there. And, um, you know, it was just very, very active in Mormonism and continued to be so through, um, my time in undergraduate and I, I wanted to become a lawyer. So I went to yeah, law school. So, but you yeah. are at this time, you're a, you're a young dad, mm-hmm. you're working in the church, you are working to support your family and you're a full-time student. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a lot. It is a lot. Um, (laughs) you know, I think Mormonism though has, it's very much kind of in the culture, uh, to, to do that. And it's not without cost. Um, you know, a lot of this kind of actually plays a part in how my 
faith in Mormonism came apart uh, hmm. when I was in law school, because you look at, as a young Mormon man, you look up and at the leadership of the church, the president of the church and the 12 apostles. And by and large, these men are were very successful by worldly standards. They are lawyers and doctors, heart surgeons and uh, professors. And there is a culture among Mormon men that is uh, very kind of bourgeois American post-war 1950s. That you a professional, yes, a professional, a professional culture, and you and, yeah. and it's sort of like you know what you, you know, dad might be off at work all the time, and then he's at the church at night because he's the bishop. But those are just kind yeah. of that's the way things are, and and th- there is a, a culture like that, and so you you know you see these very stressful times. You know, I'm. 23 years old. I've got a couple of kids, little children. I'm going to school full time. My wife does not work outside the home. So I'm, I'm also working to support us and trying to cobble together loans and scholarships and grants and whatever you can get to. Um, and does, does she have a lot of support from the women in the church who are also in the same situation? Yeah, certainly, you know, they, they, women get together and they're friends and, and I, you know, they, there's a women's organization within Mormonism called the relief society. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, that offers, I, I think that offers a good deal of, of support. And, and, you know, we were, we were always really happy. I think I was always very stressed, but, uh, and, and, you know, my own personal ambition is what that is. I always wanted to do very well in school and, um, becoming a lawyer, you know, wanted to do very well in law school and law school is a very stressful, very time intensive process. Um, in the United States, uh, law schools that are accredited by the American Bar Association, you're not, they can't allow full-time law students to have a job during your first year Hmm. of law school because it, will mess with your studies a lot (laughs) you you Mm -hmm. really you really expend a lot of time um and and it probably prepares you for the practice of law which is also a very demanding profession time-wise and you know so we we moved up to salt lake city and i went to law school at the university of utah the sj quinney college of law and did very well uh, while i was there in law school but I would say something started to happen around that time. And, and it's, a, it's sort of a confluence of, of factors. I was, again, in church leadership positions. I was called first as a counselor in the elders quorum presidency. So the elders quorum is uh, an elder is a sort of a priesthood office in Mormonism. And that encompasses most of the adult men in a ward. We should say that the elders are not necessarily older, right? Yeah, no, not even the missionaries are like, you know, when you're 18, you're already elder Christensen. Correct. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's an, it's a priesthood office to which you get ordained usually at the age of 18. And yeah. so it's encompassing most adult males. One of its biggest responsibilities at the time, uh, it was a program called the home teaching program. I think they have a new name for it now. It's like ministering or something. But at the time they called it home teaching and every family in the ward was assigned a pair of home teachers. 
you it would be you and some other guy in the ward you'd be companions and you kind of had a stewardship over that family you would go visit them once a month and give them a, sh- a short little message that would be in one of the huh. church magazines and see like how they're doing you know yeah do you need do you are people sick or people you know um uh you know, is, is somebody lose a job? Like yeah. whatever it might be. And and then, you know, you report back to the elders quorum president, uh, these sorts of things. And that's how a lot of, you know, people's material needs can be can be met through the church's welfare programs or mm-hmm. or what have you. And and the elders quorum president coordinates with the bishop and this is sort of, you know, is to help the well being of, of people in the congregation. And so I, I was called as a counselor in the Elders Quorum Presidency, and we're a fairly large ward, and that's a lot of work. I mean, that's I get up, I, I go to the law school at six o'clock in the morning, right. and I'd be studying and reading and in class all day, and I'd get back, and then I'd go to like spend my evenings, you know, doing Elders Quorum stuff, uh, visiting yeah. people, you know, all, all these sorts of things. Um, but okay. but it's all like it's all done. Like there is no parish priest whose time is spent, you know, 24 seven taking care of his flock. Um, Mm -hmm. That's just not a thing. It's the Mormon church's day to day in, in congregations is is run by regular members of the congregation. Um, It's all sort of self-sustaining in that way. And yeah. And, and I, I just with, you know, with law school and continuing to have children and these church responsibilities and the the pressures, you know, sort of professional pressures, it definitely was taking a, a toll on me. Um, my mental health sort of had a bit of a lapse. I had a bout of depression for a while. And were you sleeping at the time? Uh, not great. Certainly no. Yeah. Um, you know, sleep sleep's going to suffer. You're not really taking care yeah. of yourself. And... Um, and what, you know, had one sort of experience in particular where I received what's called a priesthood blessing, which is where a Mormon man who has the priesthood, he he puts his hands on your head and kind of says a prayer that's that in the world of Mormonism is, uh, is set up to, um, it is like God's giving you a revelation right there. Like Mm -hmm. God is supposed to speak through this person to you. And, you know, I, I, I got a a blessing like this and, and had some kind of expectations as a result of what was said to me. And, and they sort of just didn't come through and I don't need to get into all the details here, but, but it, all of these pressures just kind of really sunk me low and, and was, I was very depressed um, and you know, I even had suicidal ideation at one point Wow! and spoke to my wife about it. I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm just really not doing well. Um, and I started, you know, seeing somebody, just a doctor who, who was like, all right, let's, you know, we got to get you sleeping well. We got to get you exercising, sort of taking care of yourself to, um, you know, mitigate some of these stresses mm-hmm. in your life. And I, can I ask, yeah, is yeah. there, is there, is there a culture here where you couldn't really admit that kind of 
difficulty to your fellow brother Mormons? Like, hey, guys, I'm really struggling here. No, no. I think that there used to be a culture like that in Mormonism, much like there used to be a culture like that writ large in the United States. I didn't feel I certainly felt that just because you kind of I don't know, you maybe don't want to admit to yourself that, that you have a problem you're not wholly in control of or something, right? Right. Oh, and you don't want to be the first one in the peer group to be the... Yeah, but, you know, I certainly opened up and shared that with with other men, you know, my age, mm-hmm. of the other guys in the Elders Quorum Presidency and the bishop who was a young man my same age. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, sort of let them know. And I, and I, I actually asked and... And this was okay, you know, to be released from my calling. I just said, uh-huh. I, I just don't think I can do all of this until I get myself in a better position. And mm-hmm. you know, everybody was was fine with that. And yeah. um, but I think that there's so so that's all going on, and that that's happening through my my second year of law school when all of those pressures really come down. But there's another thing that's going on that plays an important part because when, when I got this priesthood blessing and I sort of have these expectations not met, I can now look back and I can sort of start to see just a little bit of doubt, like, Hey God, where were you? Like you, (laughs) you spoke something really pretty clear to me and it didn't follow through. Like what gives here? Um, I've been taught my whole life and, and it's largely kind of been, successful seemed correct to me that these impressions, these feelings you give to me are you talking to me and, and the ideas I have in my mind when those feelings come are, are you speaking to me? And they, they turn out to be true. That's how I know the book of Mormon is true. I read Mm -hmm. it and I prayed about it and I had this overwhelming good feeling inside when I did so. And, and it, and I was taught my whole life, this is the Holy ghost giving you a testimony Mm-hmm. of what's true. That's how, that's how you know the Book of Mormon is true. You pray about it and God will, will make you feel it, that it's true. Yeah. And, and I started to have what I can recognize now is some doubt. And at the same time, I am in law school, which is uh, an intellectual profession. And I would say intellectually, I'm a bit of a late bloomer. I was smart enough and hardworking enough in undergraduate, but law school is the place where I first started to really the kind of the life of the mind opened up to me. And, you know, you're taught to really think critically about things as a lawyer, uh, mm-hmm. to, to, you know, as a lawyer, you have to do a few things. You have to be able to, when a client comes to you for advice, you have to be able to separate yourself from your clients and even your own desires enough to give solid advice, right? To a client to say, look, the law really doesn't help you here very well, right? Uh, mm-hmm. To be objective about it. And then as an advocate, you have to be able to really pick apart somebody's argument on the other side and see where the weaknesses are and see where their logic is really not working out. And as a as a law student, you know, you're in this in this funny world where you're kind of consciously telling yourself as a Mormon, like not to apply this mode of thinking to this huge part of your life, which is your faith. What's the, what's the problem? What is it that your mind is telling you that you're supposed to ignore? So I think one thing is that this idea about receiving personal revelation, that you have these feelings and these 
thoughts that happen at the same time and that this is the way that God speaks to you, you kind of engage in a bit of confirmation bias where any time that it, it, it feels like that actually succeeded, God. that you're like, God was talking to me for sure. And then yeah. you kind of ignore all the times it doesn't work. So, okay. So that's interesting because I don't think Catholics have that expectation, right? Even people right. like Teresa of Avila had a long, dark night of the soul, that kind of thing. And she's wondering like, where were you? Or maybe I'm thinking yeah. Mother Teresa. I'm sorry. But like, where were you, God? Right. Right. And, uh, but, but Mormons, they're like, no, God's going to show up every time. That's the deal. I, I think, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. They, 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 they aren't saying that to be fair. Uh, but it's just that, um, that you are taught that one of the distinguishing factors of being Mormon is having the gift of the Holy Ghost. When you're baptized okay. and, and then you're confirmed, they they do this ceremony and say, receive the Holy Ghost. And, yeah. what, and Mormonism is really all about this idea of personal revelation, that God is going to speak gotcha. to you. And really, to, to sort of simplify and boil it down, it's about your feelings. It's, it's about yeah. the, the same... Um, the same feeling that you have when you watch a movie and you mm -hmm. see someone do something morally good and, and you kind of choke up, you feel this kind of swelling inside you. I think in some uh, like psychology, they, they call it elevation emotion or something. It's, it's something okay. we feel. We become emotional when we see something good or you might yeah. see something beautiful, right? Yeah. And, and you feel kind of this this deep feeling of satisfaction, of contentness, of happiness. Mormonism, from the time you were very little, uh, you're taught that this is God speaking to you and and that um, that what you need to be doing is asking God whether Mormonism is true, and he's going to give you these kinds of feelings in the context of Mormonism to confirm to you that Joseph Smith yes. was a prophet and the Book of Mormon is true. And it doesn't matter what critics of the church out there say about Joseph Smith or the Book of Mormon or what our prophets teach, because you have a testimony. Mm -hmm. God has told you in a way that in, in what's sort of a funny connection between postmodernism and Mormonism, it's like it's an unfalsifiable thing. No one can disprove your testimony. Yeah. And so I think I think we should take a minute just because this is almost good Catholics to say what are the big 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 strokes of the of the religion. I'm going to say it to you, and you're going to correct sure. me because um, I, I certainly don't know it as well. But the idea is that in the beginning of the 19th century, a young man named Joseph Smith received um, golden tablets that he then decoded and translated by the Holy Spirit. Uh, those golden tablets were then taken back up to heaven, and he produced something called the Book of Mormon which is the story of how one of the lost tribes of Israel sailed across to the new world and became the American Indians. And Jesus appeared to them after his death and resurrection. And that's, that's the big idea of the religion. I know that's the most cartoonish shorthand, but can you correct it? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's largely correct. And, but that's sort of one, one component of it. Um, okay. That, that, yeah, Joseph, Joseph Smith uh, discovers these, the, Golden plates is what Mormons will say. The golden. I, I should say that I, I went to the temple pageant with my Mormon friends from the Scouts, and that's oh, yeah. what I that's what I remember from the pageant. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and yeah. all of that is correct um, yeah. in broad strokes. And you know, there are people who will quibble and say, "No, you know, the church isn't saying it. they're the ancestors of the American Indians." It's there are different theories that it's about 
you know, a smaller group of people in Mesoamerica and, but whatever, the general okay. point you've made is correct, but, but it goes more. So the book of Mormon is just a really for Mormons, a strong piece of evidence that Joseph Smith is the prophet called by God to restore the true church and to good, restore good. the yeah. sort of true teachings of Jesus. So it goes beyond the Book of Mormon to a series of revelations that Joseph Smith had wrote down and compiled and redacted and edited and then put together in a book ultimately called The Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. And and then the whole idea of Mormonism is that God is sort of continually revealing to the prophet how to lead the church. And, and Joseph Smith starts to reveal Mormon cosmology and the, and the notion uh, of, of God's plan of salvation toward the end of his life. And he starts to say, we pre, so this, this isn't really taught in the Book of Mormon, uh, we pre-existed. We are spirits who lived before we came to earth and we lived with God. And God, who also has a wife, by the way, our okay. heavenly mother, are, they are the parents of our spirits. They begot our spirits in heaven. And they came up with a plan. Sort of like Jesus, right? We are younger siblings of Jesus. Yes, yeah. Jesus yes. is our brother uh, okay. in Mormonism. Uh, and um, and this is sort of, you know, very controversial and, and Mormons don't quite understand the controversy of it. But when Mormons say that, yes, Satan and Jesus are brothers, because the devil and all of the, the fallen angels who, who are with him, they were there too. Okay. And God presents this plan and says, all of you can, can go to earth and you can get a body like I have. But God, the Father, has a physical, tangible body. And, he's, and says, you can all go down, you can get a body like I have. And if, you, and if you obey my commandments and you come back, then I'll give you what I have. Then you can become a God like I am, and then you can have your own spirit children and so forth and so on. And there's a war in heaven. And Satan... And and this is is the doctrine. This is um, what everybody believes in. 100%. um, If I go ask uh, Mitt Romney... If you ask... He would say this. Yes, he would say, I believe there was a war in heaven, and God the Father presented a plan... And one of his spirit children named Lucifer said, I'll save everyone, but I'll take away everyone's free agency to do it. And another one of his spirit children named Jehovah, who later becomes Jesus, says, no, I'll be everybody's savior, but I'll give all the glory to the father and I'll let everyone have their agency. And that's really what, you know, God's plan is. That's what's chosen. And then, and Lucifer and a third of the hosts of heaven of God's spirit children rebel and are kicked out. And so that's a real difference. That's a real big difference. That's a huge difference. Yes. (laughs) That is a very big difference. Um, Just because like, you know, not to get sort of too deep into it, but again, um, you can go further down into what are maybe less official doctrines of Mormonism, but are certainly in prominent Mormon teaching, right? That 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 gets into spirits of man, maybe like weren't ever actually created, that were actually all co-eternal 
Um, and right. That sets up a whole lot of logical problems for like what it means to be God and are part of the reasons that, that there's a a big kind of non-negotiable, uh, distinction between the classical and Christian conception of God and the Mormon conception of God. So, so you're you're in law school and you're having doubts. I'm in law school and I'm having doubts and there's something going on more broadly in Mormon culture at this time. Uh, the internet has really taken off and there are, I'm in Salt Lake city, which is, uh, a place where there are a lot more, say less Orthodox Mormons. And there is a lot of talk in the news and on the internet and in, in the blogosphere about issues in the church's history and people leaving the church over these things. And there are some really high profile excommunications of some people like uh, John DeLynn, who is a fellow up in Logan, Utah, and was doing a podcast, a very popular podcast called Mormon Stories, uh, and was a place where people could come and sort of talk through how they were kind of coming up with like a more nuanced Mormonism that tried to reconcile difficult historical problems in Mormon history and doctrine. And um, there was also a, a really, you know, noted excommunication of a, of a prominent Mormon feminist named um, Kate Kelly. Both of those were featured in the New York Times. And there were reports of large numbers of people resigning from the church, resigning their membership. And the church started putting out very quietly on its website, these essays. And they would be essays about, you know, an essay about, say, race and the priesthood. So as listeners may or may not know, uh, in Mormonism, beginning in the early Utah period under Brigham Young, church leaders began to to teach that that black people could not hold the priesthood, which means they couldn't go to Mormon temples, right? Uh, and that they, they were excluded from that. And it wasn't until the late seventies that the church claimed to receive a revelation reversing that, 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 that teaching essentially. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, as you can understand, very controversial. And they, they put out an essay trying to sort of acknowledge a lot of very uncomfortable things about it. And, and they, they put out essays about the book of Mormon and the process that was used to translate it and some of the historical facts about uh, Joseph Smith's connection to treasure digging and folk magic. And they start putting all these things out. And I start meeting a lot of people in circles I'm in who are really, really smart, really educated, and who hold ideas about Mormonism that I've like never heard before. And that strike me as very heterodox, as like wrong. People who would be like, well, I believe the Book of Mormon is true, but it's not historical. Very interesting. And I'm like, what What are you talking about? I'm like, what? <laughs> that, that doesn't make any sense at all to me. Why, why, would you, why would you believe that? Like, why would you choose to believe that? And um, or people would say, yeah, you know, Joseph Smith was a prophet and, and all of our prophets have been prophets, but sometimes they get it wrong 
even when they're purporting to teach on to to translate this into Catholic, even yeah. when the prophet purports to teach infallibly on matters of faith and morals, sometimes they yeah. get it wrong. Yeah, like race and the priesthood, right? Like Mormon yeah. prophets teaching that that black people could never have the priesthood, that God had barred them from it, and that it was a curse on them, right? Well, and then here I think it's because it's such a new religion, right? Because we. I think many Christians, uh, at least, you know, Protestant, Catholic, most of the mainstream Christians, they're not going to, you know, live or die on the hill of was there a Noah's Ark that right. did it have? Did it, did it have llamas? You know, right. did, did Noah have llamas? And that's like, we're just not interested in that. It's so far back that it can be true without being factual or it can be true without being historical uh, because it's, you know, this is, it's not the point of the book. The point of the book is not a biological right. story. Um, but a but a religion that begins in the 1820s and 1830s, it's just so recent. There's newspapers, there's photography. Uh, you can yeah. you can go back and see. Yeah, and and it is. Um, I would say there's something also just. Uh, yeah, it, it's there is a lot. But as a Mormon growing up, you're told not to read those things. Yeah. You're told to read that thing that there are anti-Mormon books and anti-Mormon literature that you're not supposed to to look at. And all of this is happening and at some point I finally just have this moment where I say to myself in, internally, what if it weren't true? Wouldn't you want to know that? Yeah. And what would that look like? And how old are you at this point? Uh this would have been around 2015 so i'm 28 years old and so you're 35 years old now yes i'm 35 i'm 35 yeah um and so i i i decide to start to read and i start reading you know this is sort of a, a you know my whole life i had heard of a book that you're not supposed to read written by a vicious anti mormon woman named fawn brody and the book is called No Man Knows My History. And it's a, you know, scandalous, lie-filled, horrible book about Joseph Smith. And I start looking into it and, you know, Fawn Brody yeah. is a credentialed academic. Uh, and No Man Knows My History is not all of its um, propositions have completely stood the test of time, but it, it's it still is probably the seminal academic biography of Joseph Smith. Hmm. And most of what is in that book that was very controversial when it was published in 19, the early 1940s, I think maybe 1946. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, are things that the church now admits and are coming up with different sort of narratives to, to explain things very uncomfortable, like Joseph Smith was an, a village magician who was heavily engaged in the occult and who used seer stones to find buried treasure for people for hire, which they of course wow. never found. And that, that same seer stone, he would take it, he would put it in his top hat and look into it and could claim to see buried treasures. Um, and that's the same method he used to translate the book of Mormon. He yeah. put the stone in his hat and looked in and claimed that God made all the line, every line appear, and he would read the lines off of the surface of the stone. A, a story that, as you can imagine, is probably not one likely to persuade a lot of people in yeah. context that Joseph Smith was a prophet, but one that the church worked very hard to 
hide or obscure or or minimize in various ways. Um, and and so you know you re- you're like, hey, here's this book, and I, I read this book by Fawn Brody, and it it did something that and a lot of other books and a lot of other reading that I did at the time did something that I just had never seen or heard. And and that was very impactful. And it was, it took all of the facts about Mormonism, even some ones that it strikes me like maybe didn't quite make a lot of sense at the time and put them all into a, a new context that made more sense than the kind of traditional story the church had, had told me. And, and it was like, it's like a Plato's cave moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like once, once you see it, you can't unsee yeah. it. Uh, once you get this perspective of how to understand Mormonism, how it came about and, and a lot of the difficult historical issues it becomes really hard to, to unsee that. And, you know, at the time it was utterly devastating. It was the most emotionally and spiritually dark time I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Right. Cause the, really the rug, really the stone has been pulled out from under your feet. Yeah. Yeah. Your whole way of, of your entire worldview. How you understand? What did, you, what did your wife think as you were asking these? Big I did not talk to her about it at the yeah. time because I was very nervous. To our marriage was very, you know, healthy. Um, yeah, but it's just not something I wanted to talk about because the last thing I wanted to do at the time was like, you know, the, there are horror stories of of a one LDS spouse saying I don't believe anymore, and the other saying we're getting a divorce. Yeah, right. And you know, by this point, we have four children. And I'm the one reneging on the deal here, right? We were both very active Mormons. I loved my Mormon faith. It was everything to me. And, and I believed it. I, Mm -hmm. I can't even, it's hard to express how much I believed it at the time. And, and thus sort of how devastating it was when it just dawned on me, this isn't true. Whatever else Mormonism is. And the initial impression was whatever else Mormonism is, whatever else Joseph Smith was, they aren't what I was told they are. Yeah. But it's, there's also, even if the there's a flaw in the founder who may have been this, um, I don't want to put any adjectives on him, but, you know, not what you were hoping he was. Sure. Uh, this still is a way to transmit the gospel to, you know, America and you still have your community and you still have... You know, yeah. you still have, you still love Jesus, and you like I've, talking. To you reveals to me how much I assumed I knew about my Mormon friends, and it turns out I actually don't understand the foundations of their um, cosmological view. On the other hand, these wars that happened before the creation of the Earth have very little impact into like who who you're going to talk to at the picnic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, there is. You know, there are a lot of people who continue in Mormonism because it. It it works for them, even if they don't believe it. I have talked to yeah. many people who say, no, I don't believe everything the church teaches, but I stay because my family, I stay because this, I stay because that. I just yeah. couldn't do it. I just could not show up to church and sit there and hear. I could not stand to hear my children told things in primary school at church that were 
demonstrably false. Mm -hmm. Because there are certain things that are taught about Joseph Smith, about the Book of Mormon, and these sorts of things that are just, it's just not true. And, 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 and they're like, this is apart from like, oh, what theological import do you want to put on this or that? Like when they show pictures to little kids of Joseph Smith translating the Book of Mormon, sitting there with these golden plates in front of him, and he's got a furrowed brow and, and he's sort yeah. of studying them. That is not how it happened. And there is no historian, Mormon or otherwise, who claims any longer that's how it happened. He never, yeah. by, by all accounts, he never had the golden plates purportedly even in the room when he did yeah. this. They were never there. He used his hat and his seer stone. Um, and, you know, I, I felt a, a deep, um, you know, d- deep uncomfortableness, particularly with respect to certain things being told to my kids. And that, you know, that's very, that's very hard. And I continued to go for, for several years. Um, I went to church every week with my wife, but at some point I just, I I told her, I told her, I just kind of finally came out and told her it was devastating to her and certainly put a strain on, on our relationship that, that took time to heal. Uh, but I just, I just couldn't believe it anymore because the things that my testimony had presupposed were not true. And, and I came to realize that if I had understood these facts this way, ex ante, I don't think I ever would have associated any kind of experience with telling me these things are true. Because I think when you get the full picture, I mean, listen, if I yeah. walked to you, I walked up and I stopped you on the street and then I got a white shirt and a tie and a little black plaque on, says Elder Christensen. And I said, I want to tell you about how God has restored the true Christian church to the earth by through a man named Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith loved to hunt for buried treasures using a seer stone that he claimed he could see these things in. And he would put it in the bottom of his hat and yeah. he could claim to find it. And he knew incantations to like scare off spirit guardians that would guard the treasure. Well, one day, instead of a instead of a one of the Indian spirit guardians who guarded these treasures, one day yeah. an ancient Indian who was actually an angel named Moroni appeared to him and told him, you know, where these golden plates were, a different kind of treasure, and that he you know, then he would translate them through the same method. And this is the way that God restored the church today. Yeah. I wouldn't even get that far through the conversation, right? Yeah. Let alone if I said, and then Joseph Smith, you know, revealed that actually, you know, he needed to practice polygamy and he married, you know, 39 women, including 10 or 11 women who were already married to other men, including uh, marrying a couple girls as young as 14. Yeah. You, You just don't need to go much further, right? Right. And um, I, I also think it's just so recent. And so you, you could read about it in the papers of, of, of New York State. Whereas if, uh, you know, sometimes I'd listen to the, the rosary um, on, on YouTube. There's a lot, you know, you're praying the sure. rosary. They have like Renaissance art. And I look at this Renaissance art and I see, you know, the Annunciation, for example, and it's all interpreted through this, you know, 15th century painter's view. And right. I know that first century Palestine did not look like Florence. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I know exactly. that these, you know, these devout Christian uh, Catholic artists got this part wrong, but it doesn't bother me because I understand that they're doing their best they can through the filter of their culture. Just like Shakespeare has Julius Caesar opening his doublet or whatever. Sure. You know, they just they just didn't know. But if you're writing about something in 1830, 
it's uh, and there, and there's no question about. Let's go back and talk about what Saint Paul said in the in the first century. Like we all we all agree, like the, all that was absolutely astoundingly miraculous. I think another thing that's so different is like, look, you know, uh, uh, it. The fact that, for instance, we've had some awful popes throughout the history of the Catholic Church yeah, doesn't right. doesn't have anything to do with the Catholic Church's claims, even about right. the papacy. Right. The difference is is that when you um, when you do the historical sort of reading on the founding of Mormonism, the problems with with Mormonism or the problems with Joseph Smith are inextricably intertwined with the religious claims themselves. Joseph Smith's teaching of polygamy was, was, uh, you know, that's something that, that was taught for a very long time in the, in the Mormon church. They didn't stop doing it until the early 20th century. I come from, I, I, I descend from polygamists. Mm -hmm. I, I descend from the second wife of Jeremiah Bingham. And, uh, but, like when you when you sort of uh, unpack all of this, it's not like a religious leader who did some bad things. It was a religious leader who taught a thing that and taught that thing as infallible truth that later the church itself comes to say, we don't do that. We're not going to do that. And even st starts to border in saying that was wrong. Like the race issue is one where the church taught as doctrine that blacks yeah. could not have the priesthood. And now they're like, that's racist. That's wrong. And yeah. there were, there were things like that, you know, just that are kind of, again, inextricably intertwined with the character of Joseph Smith that are, that are quite different. Um, and again, they're very historically accessible. Yeah, no, that is, it's a really important point that, you know, we, we have a flawed church because God, works with humans and humans are building with crooked timbers, but nowhere does it say like where we do something corrupt. That's actually what's supposed to be happening. We always, yes. we always say like, ah, here where, you know, the church stole this or enslaved somebody or, or at least, you know, winked at the enslavement of other people. Like nobody pretends that that's actually what Jesus taught. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, and, and so, you know, I, I spent the ensuing years kind of being a weird, eclectic, um, whatever. I still mm -hmm. believed in God and Jesus. I, I had, I think I probably had a very kind of, what do they call it? MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism kind of okay. view of, <laughs> of God. That's very prevalent. Like, you know, God's that Mormonism was kind of the way I got to know God and God's a mystery. I don't really understand. And, but Jesus kind of seems to be the way that God speaks to me. And, yeah. um, and, and, went to church with my wife to help because we had four kids and I wasn't just going to make her take them <laughs> all by herself. That didn't seem right. <clears throat> and yeah. I, and I, every place we moved to, I would tell the leaders, like, I don't believe this stuff. Like I'm, I'm here. I'm happy. I'm a nice guy, but I don't believe any of this stuff. So I just want you to know that. And okay. so then what happened? Yeah. So we then moved, um, we moved to the Washington DC area for my, for my job. And I, um, you know, have, uh, I think a really now recognizes as providential encounter ultimately with Catholicism. Uh, I was not looking to join another church. My wife asked me at some point, do you think you're going to join another church? And I'm like, no, 
No, I don't, I don't see any reason to. Um, mm-hmm. And it's uh, it's hard for me to recount. It's recounted much better in my book. So when that comes okay. out, you, you sort of look at that. Um, because Tell us when it's coming out. It, it's supposed to come out this fall. Oh, perfect. Uh, okay. Yeah. So so um, hopefully the the publishing date holds. I don't have a fixed date, but it's supposed to be this fall, twenty twenty two. And and really, in writing the book is is really how I kind of tried to piece together the movement of God in my life that got mm-hmm. me to Catholicism, because it was really the last thing on earth I was looking for. Um, yeah. I was, I was not consciously deciding to become a Catholic, at least initially. I started to think a lot about how, how could I kind of have my own version of Mormonism? And I was thinking a lot about like, how can I reconcile all these drastic changes in Mormon teaching over the years. Um, can I come up with something that works for me? Even if it's like, obviously the church isn't going to endorse it, but like, can it work for me logically, coherently? Can it be something I latch on to so that I can continue to find meaning? And mm-hmm. I, at, at some point I stumbled across the, the very famous work of Cardinal Newman an essay on the development of Christian doctrine. Okay. Because at the time I had a, an erroneous uh, idea about how this worked, but you know, I, I'm a lawyer. I think about the common law, which sort of developed over time. Um, that's probably not really the best way to say it. It's probably better to say that it changed over time, but mm-hmm. I was thinking like, you know, how can I square the circle here with Mormonism? And I read a couple of parts of the introduction to his, to his book. Um, and, and I remember being very struck at just how erudite he was and how strange it was to hear somebody, you know, I, I saw like, Oh, he sort of, he wrote, he was Anglican. He later becomes a Catholic, but struck at kind of how, um, intellectual he is about faith and how strange and alien that kind of register was to me. Mm -hmm. And, I shelved the book. Uh, I, I really only read a few pages of of it to kind of get the sense of what he meant by development. Even in the in the part of the introduction where he just talks not about religion in particular, but just the notion of what he means by development of an idea. And and I shelved the book. And I later come across, I you know, at some point I heard about these people called the Church Fathers. I'd never heard of them ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard this, this, you know, there's a group of people, a subset of these people referred to as the apostolic fathers who are the, you know, it's the earliest writings outside the new Testament in, in Christian, Christian circles. And I thought I should, I should, you know, check that out. Maybe I'll find some things I like that I can sort of add to my eclectic Mm -hmm. version of what I believe. I don't know if you have the time to um, look at any of the previous episodes, but I've, I've gotten a lot of theologians who really specialize in this to talk about these guys. Because for me, they're so interesting. As somebody who gets so much closer to the events in the first and second century mm-hmm. and can speak about, can really take you there and show you what was the experience with this whole new idea, this whole new religion. What's mm-hmm. true? What's not true? What's What are you willing to die for? Mm-hmm. To, you know, insist on this. So I, I, I love where you're going. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I got on eBay 
and I found <laughs> I'm I'm a little I, I suppose I'm vain in certain ways. I like to have lots of books on my shelves. So sure. well, you're a lawyer. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and and I bought um let me just grab it real quick. Sure. Um so I bought <clears throat> I bought the whole um I think it's a 38 volume series on oh, eBay wow. of the anti-Nicene, uh, Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. It's a very famous kind of Protestant um, edition. You see them on people's shelves all the time. They're sort of tan and they have like red, green or blue stripes on the, on yeah. the spine. Sounds very attractive. Yeah. They're, they're a handsome set of books and I got <laughs> them quite, quite miraculously. If you check out what they go for now, I got them for just over $200 for the entire 38 volume set in, per, in wow. perfect condition, hardbound, lovely books. Yeah. And I, I even said, I said to a friend who was Catholic, I met a, a couple of Catholics at work who I became friends with. And I said, you know, I bought these and, uh, I said, I'm not really interested in any of them except the apostolic fathers ones. I, I don't, you know, all due respect, I, I don't really care what happened once the Catholic Church got its hands on Christianity, you know, by the time of St. Augustine or or thereabouts. Like, it's just, I don't really care. I, I kind of wanted to look at the earliest stuff. And so I, I bought these and I just started reading them. I just read them uh, more or less in chronological order, uh, you know, Clement and Shepherd of Hermas and the mm-hmm. Didache and um, and I think you know about as I got through in particular this, this you know this is a very boring story at this point this is a story of how many many people come into the Catholic Church I I'm, I'm reading uh, Saint Ignatius of Antioch and uh-huh. St. Justin Martyr, and I start to feel very uncomfortable <laughs> uh, because I, I don't, I just am looking at this and I remember thinking like, these people sound very Catholic to me. <laughs> they, they sound like Catholics. Yeah. You know, they, they're, um, they're saying things that sound Catholic. They're teaching things in particular, you know, this idea of the real presence in both St. Ignatius and in Justin Martyr were very shocking to me. That's, that's a doctrine not believed in, in LDS theology at all. Um, and in mm-hmm. some LDS writing, uh, the person I had mentioned earlier, Bruce R. McConkie, you know, he, he wrote some serious invective against, you know, uh, the silly and superstitious Catholic idea of the real presence and transubstantiation. But, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here reading these and thinking, well, whether I believe that or not, it just seemed to me, I don't know how you can associate yourself with these people. And yeah. these people are dying. These people are Christianity. Yeah. I don't know how you can associate yourself with them without holding this belief that seems really, to me, quite obvious that they hold it. And yeah. like I, I didn't, I wasn't reading commentaries on the fathers or anything. I was just reading them. And in fact, some of the footnotes in this translation, um, you know, the kind of the, these the the translations from the 19th century largely, and scholarly standards were a bit different. So, sort of anti-Romish invective finds its way into the footnotes. <laughs> and you know, some of the foot like there's a footnote to Justin Martyr when he talks about the Eucharist uh, that 
I just read it and said, these fellows doth protest too much. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I started to, to really just think, I was just very shocked to see that yeah. it struck me that the early Christian um, circles were, were Catholic. And while I, you know, continued to read and, and didn't see like a, a kind of one-to-one, you know, there, there's there are a lot of beliefs in some of the church fathers that are not, uh, not Orthodox or not held up by the church. But what I came away was this really distinct sense that the Catholic church was simply as a brute historical fact, the inheritor, the, the continuity of this thing, yeah. of these people, that it's the same thing. Um, and, and, and from there, you know, started to, to kind of think about the idea of becoming Catholic or, or Orthodox even, and, and to start doing more studying and reading some stuff, you know, by, Protestants, some of their thoughts about the church fathers. And that was really a lot of where I was focused was mm-hmm. on that early period. And, uh, and then I went back, um, you know, I, I, I read a lot of things. I watched a lot of things. I, I watched, uh, um, now Bishop Robert Barron, then mm-hmm. father, father Barron at the time he made them. I watched his Catholicism series, which, opened me up even more to this idea of an intellectual tradition in the Catholic faith and, and, uh, Thomas Aquinas and, and John Henry Newman. Yeah. And started doing a lot of reading about, about them. Uh, and when I, and I returned and, and read Newman's essay on the development of Christian doctrine and was just found it intellectually such a powerful account of, of a way to think about um, uh, Christian teaching, Catholic teaching. And, you know, Newman is horribly abused by lots of people um, uh, because his, his, you know, notion of development gets bandied about, about all the time by, uh, you know, what, what you would call modernists. Um, but he, you know, set forth just a very sophisticated, coherent idea the, the one that I think is very beautifully expressed of it is the case that the acorn is different from the oak tree. Yes. But they're the same. They're yeah. the same in, in a way that is undeniable, that is natural. Yeah. Right. Um, yet there, there is an obvious unfolding of the one in, into the other. Right. And that really pieced a lot of the, the kind of intellectual piece together for me. Um, that and, and kind of the natural theology uh, of, of St. Thomas. And I found those things intellectually, you know, I became very convinced um, that the Catholic Church is what it purports to be. And it began, I'd never gone to a Mass before, mm-hmm. uh, never been to Catholic Mass. And I attended in, this would have been, um, April or May, I think of 2018. Okay. I went to my very first Catholic mass. It was in the extraordinary form, uh, Latin mass, uh, where I'm now a parishioner actually at St. Rita parish in Alexandria, Virginia, mm-hmm. and was very, you know, moved by the beauty of the mass, 
and the mystery of the mass uh, and kept going and would I would go and to mass. Was, uh, was Carly and your kids coming with you? No, they were still very, very Mormon. And I would go to mass. I would get up early. I would drive. I'd go to mass and then I'd drive home and then go with them to mm-hmm. Mormon church wow. every week. Right. And it was this very stark comparison and, you know, just, you know, started doing things to kind of say, you know, I told myself like, you know, Mormon prayer is very free form, generally speaking, um, Mm -hmm. it has some sort of, you're supposed to begin a certain way and end a certain way, but what comes in the middle is, is, uh, you know, what you want to say, what you feel, and they have a tendency to look down on liturgical prayer, on Catholic, you know, recited prayer, um, which as you dig into the early church, you just get the sense of like what prayer is in its public sense, the liturgical yeah. sense um, of prayer, that it's a corporate act of the body of Christ. And that kind of stark comparison, you know, continued to persuade me about Catholicism and, uh, Mm -hmm. and there was nothing special or huge or momentous or moving about any of it. We were on vacation in uh, Las Vegas in July of 2018. My family were at the pool with uh, my wife and kids were at the pool with some of her family. And I was just alone at a hotel room. And I just decided I had, I had met the pastor a few times and told him I was kind of interested. And I just decided then and there I'm, going to become Catholic. I'm going to get baptized. I'm going to do what things I need to do. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, started the process. Uh, I didn't do RCIA. Um, I met with the, the, pa- by that point I had yeah. read most of the large <laughs> catechism. I think you've, if you've got Justin Martyr and John Henry Newman, I think you're good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, you know, we would meet on Saturday mornings. Most, most of my meetings with him were pastoral in nature, how, how do I be the father of a family who is all Mormon? What does that mean? Right. How, how, <laughs> how do I deal with this? It's a very complex, complicated situation to have, um, you know, a family who are all very, very Mormon. And I'm, you know, I, I'm yeah. supposed to, to, to be baptized. I have an obligation to do everything in my power to make sure my children are raised Catholic. Uh, so, well, you know, and I think it kind of depends on what your family says about it. Cause my wife is Protestant and my kids are kind of both like they yeah. have their first communion. They've all been baptized, but sometimes we go to Protestant church and sometimes we go to Catholic mass and they don't see any conflict. Now, what happened with your family? Was this uh, a deal breaker, um, a deal breaker for your parents, your in-laws, your wife, your kids? What, what happened? Yeah, I think, um, my wife was, by the time I became Catholic, my wife was happy for me to okay. be Catholic because she thought she got her husband back. Yeah. He was Catholic now, but I worked through that very dark period of time and, yeah. and came out a better person and she could see that. And in fact, you know, later on, she sort of said, you, you kind of actually seem like a better person than you were <laughs> even before in a lot of ways. And um, my kids were more just kind of, int- they all came to my baptism so that, that was all, that was the first time any of them had been to anything. So, you know, that was quite bewildering for them yeah. to go to my baptism. And then there was a mass immediately after my baptism and confirmation. Um, 
and then a Latin mass right after, you know, Latin and chanting and the incense and everything, you know, and Mormonism is a very low church feel. Yeah, uh, so, there's no so, decorations. Everybody's wearing yes. slacks and a white shirt, and so so this was just you know otherworldly. It's so strange, and yeah. Um, but you know my my kids and my wife came with me on Christmas when it wasn't on a Sunday. Mormons don't do church if it's not on Sunday, and don't okay. Um, you know if, if Christmas is on Wednesday, they they don't go to church on Wednesday. Um, so, you know, little things like that. And, you know, we just kind of, I, I stopped going with them once I became Catholic. Um, and I kind of worked that out with my wife to where she was, she was okay with, with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and my priest gave me the best advice I had. And, and I chuckle as, you know, um, you know, some folks would be tempted to, to have called him sort of, uh, uh, you know, a rigid traditionalist. Um, and he just gave me the most prudent advice I think I'd ever heard, which was don't be pushy, try to be a good Catholic, pray for them and be patient. And he is a very holy man. And he said to me, and I laughed at him and told him he was crazy, but he said, your wife's going to become Catholic. I, I have every assurance of it. And I thought you're out of your mind, but, um, yeah, you know, so, so we, we just kind of went on like that. And I chose my moments to talk about what my problems were with Mormonism, with my wife. Um, I, I made sure they were very spare mm-hmm. and, and not frequent and, I would talk about them and just, and I would say, you don't even have to answer. I just, I just want to tell you certain things about how I feel about certain things. And especially as our, you know, our, our oldest son was getting older. He he was approaching, you know, the time where he was going to receive the priesthood and become a deacon. That's at 12 years old. Yeah. You become a deacon at age 12 and, and, and he's going to be taught a lot of things about how Peter, James and John came and, you know, and John the Baptist all appear to Joseph Smith and, and restore the priesthood to him, uh, you know, and, and those, those stories, you know, there, there is overwhelming historical evidence that those stories were retroactively um, produced and put into the historical record by Joseph Smith years after the fact that, they didn't occur when he said they occurred, if they mm. occurred at all. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I said, there are things about this that people are going to teach my son. I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with. And, and that was kind of a, you know, it's, it's tense, but we were just kind of plodding along. And, um, and it was during uh, COVID, during all the lockdowns in 2020, that my wife one day, you know, she wasn't going to church. None of us were. And she said, can I watch mass with you hmm. today? And I said, of course. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything else. And she said, yes, of course you can. Um, and, you know, I, during, uh, during that time, my wife and I just kind of, I, I, we felt pretty strongly that we would prefer to have our kids because, because we could afford it and, and it worked for us. We, 
would prefer to have our kids at a Catholic school rather than in the public schools. And, um, and she agreed to have mm-hmm. them in the school. And I started introducing my kids pretty heavily to Catholicism. I started praying the rosary with them every day. Oh, good. And, you know, things moved really quickly. And yeah. my wife agreed. My, my son, Rex, who was seven and, and was approaching eight years old, the time he would be baptized. And he's got grandparents asking, you know, is Rex going to get baptized? And, and Rex told me he, he didn't want to be Mormon. He wanted to be a Catholic like his dad. Yeah. And my wife, eventually I, my oldest son also wanted to, he, he ultimately, you know, told me privately, he started to have a lot of doubts when he started to hear something at church about Joseph Smith having more than one wife. He instinctually thought that's not right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) and you know, my kids, um, I started to just catechize them and take them to church, uh, or, you know, they would watch mass. And then when, when things lifted and we could go to mass, I started taking them with me to mass and they were, uh, my oldest four were baptized on, um, on assumption 2020. So August 15th, 2020. And my wife agreed to that. And, and about that time, you know, she had started to express that she had some doubts about Mormonism and was trying to work through those. And, uh, and then she, she went through RCIA starting in the Mm -hmm. fall of 2020. And, uh, she got baptized on, uh, June 12th, 2021, uh, the same day as our then very newborn son, Peter Ambrose, uh, was baptized. They were baptized Mm. together. And to, to get back to a question you had, you had asked that I did not forget. This is a very roundabout way to get to it. You know, it was very hard on our families. It was hard on my family, my parents and some of my siblings and my wife, obviously, when I left the Mormon church, even just intellectually, when I told them, Hmm. I don't believe this anymore. I'm done with this. That was very difficult for them. Um, and not, I don't begrudge them that at all. Yeah. Uh, they, they believe it. And, um, and you know, that was very difficult. And a lot of us said a lot of things that we regret now (laughs) and, and that we, that we've overcome, um, you know, so my, my, my relationship with my family is good. And, and we've been able to sort of work those things out um, as yeah. as much as as much as we can, as best we can. And it was also very very difficult for my wife's family when she told them first when she told them I'm allowing all my children to be baptized and raised Catholic, and later when she said I'm leaving the Mormon Church and I'm going to become Catholic with the rest of my family with Jeremy and, and the kids. Um, you know, it was very hard for them. And it's, uh, it's painful. It's painful for parents to see, uh, their children reject their faith because we come from families that, uh, faith is both sides. You know, my wife's family is just like my family, very devout and faith is everything to them. And so it is understandable that they are, are, you know, we're hurt and upset by that. But, uh, you know, I, I just think, with time and again, being patient and, and not unnecessarily picking fights with people, Mm -hmm. you know, we've been able to have those relationships, relationships be 
be good and and healthy as as much as they can be with us having you know we obviously have yeah. some differences about uh, about religion. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, I I live in California. I bet Virginia is very similar. That a lot of my dear friends here are secular atheists, and we sit around and we drink beer, and our kids play together, and we slowly, slowly, you know, we chat and we ask questions. But there's patience and love, and um, it, there's no there's no need to push. And the more you push, the more you close people off. And I I just think you did it in such a gentle, wise, uh, such a gentle and wise way in your pastor at Santa, uh, Santa Rita gave you such good advice. Yeah, it, it really was. You know, everyone has their moments and, and has the things that will move them, um, the ways in which God's providence will move them uh, toward the Catholic Church. And, you know, you just have to be patient and and prayerful and observant and prudent about about how you approach that question. And yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's thanks be to God. We are all now, uh, Catholic and, uh, my, you know, my boys, uh, my two older boys are altar servers, um, and love, love serving at the mass. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're quite happy. What my hope is with the book is, uh, it's multifaceted. Um, I hope that Catholics can just get a, a better appreciation of, of reading a very in-depth, autobiographical, you know, memoir about why it is I believed, how it is that a Mormon testimony is built and why it is such a firm thing. And that Catholics can just have a better appreciation of where, uh, where Mormons are coming from. And I don't have any sort of key insight into how to evangelize Mormons. I I haven't the foggiest idea. I, I don't even really see that as being my role in the world. My hope is that that people whose role that is um, can read about my life and, and maybe they'll gain some key insights that will help um, appropriately evangelize Mormons uh, because Mm -hmm. I, it is a, it's an area that I think that Catholics really don't pay much attention to Um, that Catholics spend a lot of time, you know, uh, we had an entire ecumenical council, not a, a large part of which was devoted yeah. to the idea of like, all right, how can we in a how can we sophisticatedly evangelize Protestants who've now become a massive world force, yeah. right? Um, and that being the Second Vatican Council, and you know, Mormon Mormon the Mormon Church is what like sixteen million people on paper. Um, that's very tiny. And it's just not yeah. something really necessarily on the church's global radar. But I hope, you know, Mormons are are great people and they are, are also, you know, children of God, mm-hmm. uh, created in God's image. And um Yeah. And and so I, I hope that Catholics can sort of gain that understanding and, and maybe gain some good insights about how to dialogue and and uh and evangelize mormons appropriately and then i well i have some kind of hope that mormons might also uh read the book and and see in that experience an experience similar to their own and be open to the idea of of the catholic faith um i think that will be difficult for many because there are a lot you know particularly in the chapter where i talk about what are the things in general and in particular that cause me to lose my faith? 
in mm-hmm. doing historical research. Um, you know, there'll be a lot of active Mormon people are reticent to read those sorts of things. I've tried really hard to be respectful and and diplomatic as I can. Um, but, uh, you know, so I do hold that hope that, uh, that they will read it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I totally agree that the, the Mormons I have known in my life were very admirable, moral, kind people, good neighbors, good friends. Yeah, and I think absolutely. your, your approach, you know, and, and the way the church is more ecumenical is like your approach of just being gentle, uh, is, is the way to proselytize as, as Augustine of Hippo says, truth is like a lion. You just, you just let it out. You don't have to defend it. It will mm-hmm. defend itself. And, yep. um, your job is to, and I also hope that your book, um, is going to be like sort of the thing that somebody who's in your position before, when you read the book about the, by the historian about yeah, Joseph yeah. Smith, um, Fawn Brody. Yeah. When, just when you read, uh, Fawn Brody's book about, Joseph Smith from the 1940s, like somebody in that situation might be able to reach for yours and, and hear very yeah. thoughtful, uh, erudite and sincere and uh, gentle testimony. Um, so that book is called From Susquehanna to the Tiber. Yes. And it's coming out from Ignatius Press later this year. Yes. So Jeremy Christensen, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate your time. This is, you know, I, I said it would be an hour, so almost two. I, and I really appreciate all your time on this beautiful Saturday afternoon. And may God bless you and your wife and your kids. Thank you so much, Chris. I appreciate it. And God bless you as well. Amen. Nails, spear shall pierce him through the cross. Be born for me, for you, and hail. Jeremy Christensen and Chris Odinitz recorded this conversation on Saturday, July 16, 2022. It's the feast day of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, a religious order of mendicants that began on the original Mount Carmel in the Holy Land, in the Crusader States, in the late 12th century, and has spread all over the world and includes important mystics and saints like St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, and St. Therese of Lisieux. Our music is from Josh and Margot of The Great Space Coaster, and their website is gscoasterband.com. Our logo, the image of the dog, is from a stained glass window from a Spanish monastery. I took it with the permission of the Dominican friars of England, Scotland, and Wales from their website, english.op.org. I'm Chris Odinians. Please email me at almostgoodcatholics at gmail.com. I thank you so much for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. This, this is Christ the King, whom shepherds guard and angels sing.